Introduction of Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in February 2016. Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio, Volume 1, by Song Ding Pu. Translated by Herbert Allen Giles. Introduction 1. Personal The public has, perhaps, a right to be made acquainted with the title under which I, an unknown writer, come forward as the translator of a difficult Chinese work. In the spring of 1867, I began the study of Chinese at HBM's legation, Peking, under an implied promise, in a dispatch from the then Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, that successful efforts would be rewarded by proportionately rapid advancement in the service of which I was a member. Then followed a long novitiate of utterly uninteresting and, indeed, most repellent labour, inseparable however from the acquisition of this language which throughout its early stages demands more from sheer memory than from the exercise of any other intellectual faculty at length in the spring of eighteen seventy seven while acting as vice-consul at canton i commenced the translation of the work here offered to the english reader for such a task i had flattered myself into the belief that I possessed two of the requisite qualifications, an accurate knowledge of the grammatical structure of the language, and an extensive insight into the manners, customs, superstitions, and general social life of the Chinese. I had been variously stationed at Peking, Tianjin, Takou, and Taiwan Fu, in Formosa, Ningpo, Hankou, Swatou, and Canton, from the latter of which I was transferred, when my task was still only half finished, to Amoy. I had travelled beyond the Great Wall into Mongolia, and I had made the journey overland from Swoto to Canton, a distance of five hundred miles, besides which, in addition to my study of the language, my daily object in life had always been to familiarise myself as much as possible with Chinese sympathies and habits of thought. With these advantages, and by the interesting nature of the subject matter, I hoped to be able on the one hand to arouse a somewhat deeper interest than is usually taken in the affairs of China, and, on the other, to correct at any rate some of the erroneous views, too frequently palmed off by inefficient and disingenuous workers, and too readily accepted as fact. And I would here draw attention to one most important point namely that although a great number of books have been published about china and the chinese there are extremely few in which the information is conveyed at first hand in other words in which the chinese are allowed to speak for themselves footnote how can a statement as to customs myths beliefs etc of a savage tribe be treated as evidence where it depends on the testimony of some traveller or missionary, who may be a superficial observer, more or less ignorant of the native language, a careless retailer of unsifted talk, a man prejudiced or even willfully deceitful. Tyler's Primitive Culture, Volume 1, page 9. 
End footnote. Hence, perhaps, it may be that in an accurately compiled work such as Tyler's Primitive Culture, allusions to the religious rites and ceremonies of nearly one-third of the human race are condensed within the limits of barely a dozen short passages. Hence, too, it undoubtedly is that many Chinese customs are ridiculed and condemned by turns, simply because the medium through which they have been conveyed has produced a distorted image. Much of what the Chinese do actually believe and practice in their religious and social life will be found in this volume, in the Ipissima Verba of a highly educated scholar writing about his fellow countrymen and his native land, while for the notes with which I have essayed to make the picture more suggestive and more acceptable to the European eye, I claim only so much authority as is due to the opinion of one qualified observer who can have no possible motive in deviating ever so slightly from what his own personal experience has taught him to regard as the truth. 2. Biographical The barest skeleton of a biography is all that can be formed from the very scanty materials which remain to mark the career of a writer whose work has been for the best part of two centuries as familiar throughout the length and breadth of China as are the tales of the Arabian Nights in all English-speaking communities. The author of Strange Stories was a native of Tzu Chou in the province of Shantung. His family name was Pu, his particular name was Sung Ling, and the designation or literary epithet by which, in accordance with Chinese usage, he was commonly known among his friends was Liu Xian, or Last of the Immortals. A further fancy name given to him probably by some enthusiastic admirer was Liu Chu'an, or Willow Spring, but he is now familiarly spoken of simply as Pu Sung Ling. We are unacquainted with the years of his birth or death. However, by the aid of a meagre entry in the history of Tzu Chou, it is possible to make a pretty good guess at the date of the former event for we have there told that Pu Sung Ling successfully competed for the lowest or bachelor's degree before he had reached the age of twenty, and that in 1651 he was in the position of a graduate of ten years' standing, having failed in the interim to take the second or master's degree. To this failure, due, as we are informed in the history above quoted, to his neglect of the beaten track of academic study, we owe the existence of his great work, not indeed his only production, though the one par excellence by which, as Confucius said of his own spring and autumn, men will know him. All else that we have on record of Pu Sung Ling, besides the fact that he lived in close companionship with several eminent scholars of the day, is gathered from his own words, written when, in 1679, he laid down his pen upon the completion of a task which was to raise him within a short period to a foremost rank in the Chinese world of letters. Of that record I here append a close translation, accompanied by such notes as are absolutely necessary to make it intelligible to non-students of Chinese. Author's Own Record Clad in wisteria, girdled with ivy, Thus sang San Lu in his dissipation of grief. 
of ox-headed devils and serpent gods he of the long nails never wearied to tell each interprets in his own way the music of heaven and whether it be discord or not depends upon antecedent causes as for me i cannot with my poor autumn fireflies light match myself against the hobgoblins of the age i am but the dust in the sunbeam a fit laughing-stock for devils for my talents are not those of yu pao elegant explorer of the records of the gods i am rather animated by the spirit of su tung po who loved to hear men speak of the supernatural i get people to commit what they tell me to writing and subsequently i dress it up in the form of a story and thus in the lapse of time my friends from all quarters have supplied me with quantities of material which from my habit of collecting has grown into a vast pile human beings i would point out are not beyond the pale of fixed laws and yet there are more remarkable phenomena in their midst than in the country of those who crop their hair antiquity is unrolled before us and many tales are to be found therein stranger than that of the nation of flying heads irrepressible bursts and luxurious ease such was always his enthusiastic strain forever indulging in liberal thought thus he spoke openly without restraint were men like these to open my book i should be a laughing-stock to them indeed at the cross-roads men will not listen to me and yet i have some knowledge of the three states of existence spoken of beneath the cliff neither should the words i utter be set aside because of him that utters them when the bow was hung at my father's door he dreamed that a sickly-looking buddhist priest but half covered by his stole entered the chamber on one of his breasts was a round piece of plaster like a cache and my father waking from sleep found that i just born had a similar black patch on my body as a child i was thin and constantly ailing and unable to hold my own in the battle of life our home was chill and desolate as a monastery and working there for my livelihood with my pen i was as poor as a priest with his arms bowl often and often i put my hand to my head and exclaimed surely he who sat with his face to the wall was myself in a previous state of existence and thus i referred my non-success in this life to the influence of a destiny surviving from the last i have been tossed hither and thither in the direction of the ruling wind like a flower falling in filthy places but the six paths of transmigration are inscrutable indeed and i have no right to complain as it is midnight finds me with an expiring lamp while the wind whistles mournfully without and over my cheerless table i piece together my tales vainly hoping to produce a sequel to the infernal regions with a bumper i stimulate my pen yet i only succeed thereby in venting my excited feelings and as i thus commit my thoughts to writing truly i am an object worthy of commiseration alas i am but the bird that dreading the winter frost finds no shelter in the tree the autumn insect that chirps to the moon and hugs the door for warmth but where are they who know me they are in the bosky grove and at the frontier pass wrapped in an impenetrable gloom 
from the above curious document the reader will gain some insight into the abstruse but at the same time marvellously beautiful style of this gifted writer the whole essay for such it is and among the most perfect of its kind is intended chiefly as a satire upon the scholarship of the age scholarship which had turned the author back to the disappointment of a private life himself conscious all the time of the inward fire that had been lent him by heaven it is the keynote to his own subsequent career spent in the retirement of home in the society of books and friends as also to the numerous uncomplimentary allusions which occur in all his stories relating to official life whether or not the world at large has been a gainer by this instance of the fallibility of competitive examinations has been already decided in the affirmative by the millions of pu sung ling's own countrymen who for the past two hundred years have more than made up to him by a posthumous and enduring reverence for the loss of those earthly and ephemeral honours which he seems to have coveted so much three bibliographical strange stories from a chinese studio known to the chinese as the liao chai chi yi or more familiarly the liao chai has hardly been mentioned by a single foreigner without some inaccuracy on the part of the writer concerned for instance the late mr myers states in his chinese readers manual page one hundred seventy six that this work was composed circa a d seventeen ten the fact being that the collection was actually completed in sixteen seventy nine as we know by the date attached to the author's own record given above it is consequently two centuries almost to the day since the first appearance of a book destined to a popularity which the lapse of time seems wholly unable to diminish and the present may fairly be considered a fitting epoch for its first presentation to the english reader in an english dress i should mention however that the liao chai was originally and for many years circulated in manuscript only Pu Sung Ling, as we are told in a colophon by his grandson to the first edition, was too poor to meet the heavy expense of block-cutting, and it was not until as late as 1740, when the author must have been already for some time a denizen of the dark land he so much loved to describe, that his aforesaid grandson printed and published the collection now so universally famous. Since then, many editions have been laid before the Chinese public, the best of which is that by tan ming lung a salt commissioner who flourished during the reign of tao kuang and who in eighteen forty two produced at his own expense an excellent edition in sixteen small octavo volumes of about one hundred sixty pages each and as various editions will occasionally be found to contain various readings i would here warn students of chinese who wish to compare my rendering with the text that it is from the edition of tan ming lung collated with that of yu qi published in seventeen sixty six that this translation has been made many have been the commentaries and disquisitions upon the meaning of obscure passages and the general scope of this work to say nothing of the prefaces with which the several editions have been ushered into the world 
of the latter i have selected one specimen from which the reader will be able to form a tolerably accurate opinion as to the true nature of these always singular and usually difficult compositions here it is tang meng lai's preface the common saying he regards a camel as a horse with a swelled back trivial of itself may be used in illustration of greater matters men are wont to attribute an existence only to such things as they daily see with their own eyes and they marvel at whatsoever appearing before them at one instant vanishes at the next and yet it is not at the sprouting and falling of foliage or at the metamorphosis of insects that they marvel but only at the manifestations of the supernatural world though of a truth the whistling of the wind and the movement of streams with nothing to set the one in motion or give sound to the other might well be ranked among extraordinary phenomena we are accustomed to these and therefore do not note them we marvel at devils and foxes we do not marvel at man but who is it that causes a man to move and to speak to which question comes the ready answer of each individual so questioned i do this i do however is merely a personal consciousness of the facts under discussion for a man can see with his eyes but he cannot see what it is that makes him see he can hear with his ears but he cannot hear what it is that makes him hear how then is it possible for him to understand the rationale of things he can neither see nor hear whatever has come within the bounds of their own ocular or auricular experience men regard as proved to be actually existing and only such things footnote thus since countless things exist that the senses can take account of it is evident that nothing exists that the senses cannot take account of the professor in w h mallock's new paul and virginia this passage recalls another curious classification by the great chinese philosopher han wen kung there are some things which possess form but are devoid of sound as for instance jade and stones others have sound but are without form such as wind and thunder others again have both form and sound such as men and animals and lastly there is a class devoid of both namely devils and spirits End footnote. but this term experience may be understood in various senses for instance people speak of something which has certain attributes as form and of something else which has certain other attributes as substance ignorant as they are that form and substance are to be found existing without those particular attributes things which are thus constituted are inappreciable indeed by our ears and eyes but we cannot argue that therefore they do not exist some persons can see a mosquito's eye while to others even a mountain is invisible some can hear the sound of ants battling together while others again fail to catch the roar of a thunder peal powers of seeing and hearing vary there should be no reckless imputations of blindness according to the schoolmen man at his death is dispersed like wind or fire the origin and end of his vitality being alike unknown and as those who have seen strange phenomena are few 
the number of those who marvel at them is proportionately great and the horse with a swelled back parallel is very widely applicable and ever quoting the fact that confucius would have nothing to say on these topics these schoolmen half discredit such works as the qi qie qi kuai and the yu chu qi yi ignorant that the sage's unwillingness to speak had reference only to persons of an inferior mental calibre for his own spring and autumn can hardly be said to be devoid of all illusions of the kind footnote i have never seen any of these works but i believe they treat as implied by their titles chiefly of the supernatural world End footnote. now pu liu xian devoted himself in his youth to the marvellous and as he grew older was specially remarkable for his comprehension thereof and being moreover a most elegant writer he occupied his leisure in recording whatever came to his knowledge of a particularly marvellous nature a volume of these compositions of his formerly fell into my hands and was constantly borrowed by friends now i have another volume and of what i read only about three-tenths was known to me before what there is should be sufficient to open the eyes of those schoolmen though i much fear it will be like talking of ice to a butterfly personally i disbelieve in the irregularity of natural phenomena and regard as evil spirits only those who injure their neighbours for eclipses falling stars the flight of herons the nest of a mina talking stones and the combats of dragons can hardly be classed as irregular while the phenomena of nature occurring out of season wars rebellions and so forth may certainly be relegated to the category of evil in my opinion the morality of pu liu xien's work is of a very high standard its object being distinctly to glorify virtue and to censure vice and as a book calculated to elevate mankind may be safely placed side by side with the philosophical treatises of yang xiong which huan tan declared to be so worthy of a wide circulation with regard to the meaning of the chinese words liao chai qi yi this title has received indifferent treatment at the hands of different writers dr williams chose to render it by pastimes of the study and mr myers by the record of marvels or tales of the genii neither of which is sufficiently near to be regarded in the light of a translation taken literally and in order these words stand for liao library record strange liao being simply a fanciful name given by our author to his private library or studio an apocryphal anecdote traces the origin of this selection to a remark once made by himself with reference to his failure for the second degree alas he is reported to have said i shall now have no resource liao for my old age and accordingly he so named his study meaning that in his pen he would seek that resource which fate had denied to him as an official for this untranslatable liao i have ventured to substitute chinese as indicating more clearly the nature of what is to follow no such title as tales of the genii fully expresses the scope of this work which embraces alike weird stories of taoist devilry and magic 
marvellous accounts of impossible countries beyond the sea, simple scenes of Chinese everyday life, and notices of extraordinary natural phenomena. Indeed, the author once had it in contemplation to publish only the more imaginative of the tales in the present collection under the title of Devil and Fox Stories, but from this scheme he was ultimately dissuaded by his friends, the result being the heterogeneous mass which is more aptly described by the title I have given to this volume. In a similar manner, I too had originally determined to publish a full and complete translation of the whole of these sixteen volumes, but on a closer acquaintance many of the stories turned out to be quite unsuitable for the age in which we live, forcibly recalling the coarseness of our own writers of fiction in the last century. Others again were utterly pointless, or mere repetitions in a slightly altered form. Of the whole, I therefore selected 164 of the best and most characteristic stories, of which eight had previously been published by Mr. Allen in the China Review, one by Mr. Myers in Notes and Queries on China and Japan, two by myself in the columns of the Celestial Empire, and four by Dr. Williams in a now-forgotten handbook of Chinese. The remaining 149 have never before, to my knowledge, been translated into English. To those, however, who can enjoy the Liao Chai in the original text, the distinctions between the various stories of felicity in plot, originality, and so on, are far less sharply defined, so impressed as each competent reader must be by the incomparable style in which even the meanest is arrayed. For in this respect, as important now in Chinese eyes as it was with ourselves in days not long gone by, the author of the Liao Chai and the rejected candidate succeeded in founding a school of his own, in which he has since been followed by hosts of servile imitators, with more or less success. Terseness is pushed to its extreme limits, each particle that can be safely dispensed with is scrupulously eliminated, and every here and there some new and original combination invests perhaps a single word with a force it could never have possessed except under the hands of a perfect master of his art. Add to the above copious allusions and adaptations from a course of reading which would seem to have been co-extensive with the whole range of Chinese literature, a wealth of metaphor and an artistic use of figures generally, to which only the chef-d'oeuvre of Carlyle form an adequate parallel, and the result is a work which for purity and beauty of style is now universally accepted in China as the best and most perfect model. Sometimes the story runs along plainly and smoothly enough, but the next moment we may be plunged into pages of abstruse text, the meaning of which is so involved in quotations from and allusions to the poetry or history of the past three thousand years, as to be recoverable only after diligent perusal of the commentary and much searching in other works of reference. In illustration of the popularity of this book, Mr. Myers once stated that the porter at his gate, the boatman at his midday rest, the chair coolie at his stand, no less than the man of letters among his books, may be seen poring with delight over the elegantly narrated marvels of the Liao Chai. 
but he would doubtless have withdrawn this judgment in later years with the work lying open before him ever since i have been in china i have made a point of never when feasible passing by a reading chinaman without asking permission to glance at the volume in his hand and at my various stations in china i have always kept up a borrowing acquaintance with the libraries of my private or official servants but i can safely affirm that i have not once detected the liao chai in the hands of an ill-educated man mr myers made perhaps a happier hit when he observed that fairy tales told in the style of the anatomy of melancholy would scarcely be a popular book in great britain though except in some particular points of contact the styles of these two writers could scarcely claim even the most distant of relationships such then is the setting of this collection of strange stories from a chinese studio many of which contain in addition to the advantages of style and plot a very excellent moral the intention of most of them is in the actual words of tang meng lai to glorify virtue and to censure vice always it must be borne in mind according to the chinese and not to our european interpretation of these terms as an addition to our knowledge of the folklore of china and as an aperçu of the manners customs and social life of that vast empire my translation of the liao chai may not be wholly devoid of interest the amusement and instruction i have myself derived from the task thus voluntarily imposed has already more than repaid me for the pains i have been at to put this work before the english public in a pleasing and available form. End of Introduction